What is up, everybody? Welcome back. We are back. The Tattoo Historian Show is here, and I'm so happy to be back for another season of interviews and commentary on the historical narrative. I want to thank my sponsors. That would be you, the people who listen to this podcast, the people who share it out, the people who follow me on Twitch, subscribe to my Twitch channel. You're on my Buy Me a Coffee you buy a shirt or a coffee mug off of me. In other words, if you have ever spent time on any of my programs in the chats, you have subscribed in numerous places, you are the reason why this continues, and I'm so thankful. This is like the public television, I guess, of the history field, in that everything comes from you, and I really, really appreciate that today. We have someone who really does not need any introduction in the Civil War field. That is the incomparable Gary Gallagher. Gary came on a few months ago to talk to me about the newest book with his name on the front cover, and that would be the edited works of Bruce Catton's Army of the Potomac series. Catton impacted both Gary Gallagher and myself, and perhaps you as well. And uh, this was a great conversation. I really enjoyed having Gary back on. Can't wait to have him back for his next uh, project. And we'll see when that happens. But until that time, let's go into this discussion with my friend, Gary Gallagher. Uh, Tonight, we have a returning guest, uh, a guy who was on 10 months ago on the channel and I'm really happy to have him back on. He's a guy who really doesn't need any kind of an introduction in the Civil War history field, but he is the John Nall III Professor of History Emeritus at the University of Virginia. Ladies and gentlemen, my friend, Gary Gallagher. Gary, how are you? I'm fine, John, thanks for inviting me back. I'm delighted to be here again. It's awesome to have you back on. I was so happy and thrilled to get your email and uh, when you, inquired about coming on and talk about this new book. And I'm like, well, you don't really need to, you know, ask, <laughs> Gary. <laughs> you just invite yourself. Uh, but but it's great to have you on again. And, and I'm really excited to talk about this new book. Uh, but for anyone who doesn't know, Gary has been around for some time, right, Gary? And doing what a kind well. way to put that. <laughs> yes, for some time. <laughs> yes. Uh, I remember watching Gary when I was younger. I won't say the age. And uh, growing up in the uh, mid-1990s in Civil War history was the boom time, and Gary showed up on my TV screen a lot. So I've read a lot of Gary's works, and it's great, again, to have him on here. Uh, Gary, what is new and exciting with you? Anything since the last 10 months that we when we were together? <laughs> well, the, I mean, this what the book we're going to talk about today, which is not really my book, uh, but it's a book that I... I served as editor for uh, Bruce Catton's Army, the Potomac Trilogy. That's the that's the most recent thing. I mean, I do the usual array, usual array of things. I give talks and do other things. But uh, this is the only big Civil War thing that I've been engaged with in the last year. When you wrote to me and said what you were working on, I was like, that's a big project because that trilogy is immense. Um, and I think what is it, the book comes in on just over 1300 pages. It's just under 1300 pages, 1270 some pages. So it's, it's the unabridged texts of, of Catton's army, the Potomac trilogy, Mr. Lincoln's army, which came out in 1951, 
Glory Road, which came out in 1952, and A Stillness at Appomattox, which came out in 1953, won the Pulitzer Prize in the National Book Award. The last one did. And for anyone interested, I already placed a link into the chat so you can go there and get your copy. I think it dropped today. I, I believe. Yeah, today is the day that it, today's the day that they, I mean, I got a few advanced copies a short while ago, but today mm -hmm. was the official day. Today's mm -hmm. the day. So Gary, for anyone who doesn't know who we're talking about, they're, they're probably not a Civil War historian or just new to Civil War history if you don't know who Bruce Catton is. Uh, give us a little bit of a background on who Catton is and how you were introduced to his work. Well, Bruce Catton is... The, he was a journalist for most of his life. He was born around the turn, turn of the 20th century uh, in, in Michigan. And he worked as a journalist until he was 50 years old. And when he was 50, he decided to become a historian. And his first project was these three, was these three volumes. He, um, he brought them out. They didn't sell that well initially. And then they began to sell much better later. Uh, during the 1950s and into the 60s, he served as the first editor of American Heritage Magazine, which was a very beautiful hardcover magazine that sought to make available the best work of really good historians for a popular audience. It was a, it was they were all that had a, a white hardcover binding. I said I got them when I was a kid. Um, no advertising in them, just these beautiful issues of American Heritage that, that came out quarterly. But he also, and he, his reputation grew in the 1950s because of the Army of the Potomac Trilogy. And then he published during the centennial, uh, you grew up in a wonderful time to grow up with Civil War things from the late 90, 1980s through the 1990s was really a golden age of Civil War things with Ken Burns and Jim McPherson and battlefield preservation. I mean, just all kinds of things happening. The Civil War centennial is when I grew up. I was during the Civil War centennial, the age you were uh, in your golden age. I was born in 1950, so I was 10 when it started, 14 when it finished. And Catton produced another trilogy during the Civil War centennial called The Centennial History of the Civil War, uh, The Coming Fury, Terrible Swift Sword, and Never Call Retreat. He also wrote two volumes on U.S. Grant, finished a biography of Grant begun by Lloyd Lewis. He wrote a, a shorter book on Grant, in the old Little Brown series of short biographies. Uh, his was titled U.S. Grant and the American Military Tradition. He was, and he wrote the text for a book that was the most important book in terms of getting me hooked on the Civil War, which was a book called The American Heritage Picture History of the Civil War. It came out in 1960. We've already talked about this. That book hooked you as well. It's an amazing it book. It's it still a wonderful first book to give anybody who wants to be introduced to the Civil War, I think. Right. Uh, a yeah. book that was quite a phenomenon, a big coffee table book, coffee table book. It sold almost 400,000 copies the first year it was out. Just wow. amazing. And it, it, all, it won a special Pulitzer Prize. And he continued to write on down through the 70s. He wrote a memoir toward the end of his life. Mm -hmm. uh, but he became the most widely read, the most recognizable figure who wrote about the Civil War during these decades. And I'm sure that he got more people interested in the Civil War than anyone else in the 1950s and 1960s and into the 1970s. And in, in my view, he was and remains the very best narrative writer who's ever written about the Civil War. He's an amazing writer. Uh, mm -hmm. he, he 
true and, and, and his writing holds up i'm sure we'll talk about that later he's just he had a real gift for writing poetic uh evocative and yet very clear uh he's he's just he was a tremendous stylist with a real sense of how to bring the past alive would you say that style is due to his background in journalism instead of being the more traditionally based historian at that time? I think the clarity it comes from his journalistic background. He gave a set of lectures in the 1950s that were also turned into a little book. And in those lectures, he talked about his approach to writing. And the thing that he really emphasized there is clarity. He said, you have to have clarity. If you have clarity, then you can do other things. But if you're not clear in your writing, it doesn't matter what else you're doing, it won't work. And he clearly does. I mean, I, sometimes I think he tried a little bit too hard and got a little too flowery. But for the most part, he carries it off with just these just just this tremendous sense of language. But undergirding the whole thing is the ability to write clearly. Uh, mm -hmm. And he and I think that came from his journalistic background. He was an editor uh, and, and all his editorial work with American Heritage. I read a couple of accounts by people who sent things to who sent things to him and who worked with him at American Heritage. And they said he was the best editor they'd ever been around. He could wow. give him a piece of text and he'd make it better and 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 just make it just right. So that's a gift. And, and his journalistic career certainly furthered that, I think. When I hear people say, well, this person isn't a trained historian, I always scoff because I think of Catton because I mean, he wasn't a trained quote unquote historian in a, in a traditional no. sense of having a degree or anything. And here's he didn't even graduate from undergraduate school. Right. Uh, he attended wow. Oberlin a couple of times. Uh, he started just before world war two, then went in the Navy for a little while, didn't see action, then went back to Oberlin, but still didn't finish. And then just went, went and worked. He had a lot of honorary degrees, mm -hmm. but no, yes. In fact, I'm all, I mean, if someone says he's not an academic, uh, I think that's, that may be a good thing in terms of style. <laughs> Yeah. Whatever we do in academia, stressing eloquent writing is not one of them. That's not something that gets much attention. It just isn't. It isn't. That's true. That's true. Uh, Catton is jargon-free. You you won't see a lot. Uh, you, there's just no jargon in Catton. I think the other thing that Catton is really great at, and probably why when we were young minds, um, we, gra we gravitated towards Catton so much, is because he doesn't get into that minutia of tactics, does he? He gets kind of a larger painting this larger kind of a painting of what is going on and not being worried about what this particular colonel, how he faced the regiment or did anything. He was like painting a broad stroke. I, that was one of the, I hadn't read Catton in, in probably 40 years uh, until I came back to this. I got, a, I got a, the people at the library of America who've done all these wonderful volumes, more than 350 now of sort of classic uh, American literature I got a note from them asking whether I thought Catton deserved to be included in the Library of America, this specifically the Army of the Potomac trilogy. And I said, absolutely. I did that on the basis of my memory of Catton as being such a so instrumental in bringing me into the field and so uh, strikingly effective. But I actually hadn't looked at him, looked at this set in a long time. Uh, going back through it, was one of the things that struck me is how little actual on the ground close narrative tactical history there is in it there's very little he 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 really paints with a broader brush than that there's some and when he wants to do it he's very good at it 
Uh, he there are set pieces in it that are the, the crater, uh, the fight for the bloody angle. Mm-hmm. Uh, he can do it when he wants to, but but that's not what these books are mainly about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think he uh, he helped out with that? biography on Grant, came up with his own thoughts on Grant. Do you think he nailed, <clears throat> excuse me, anyone in the Civil War as well as he did Grant? The, the I think he's, I think he nails McClellan. I, I think his uh-huh. McClellan is absolutely persuasive. Uh, he has some mm-hmm. passages. And of course, he just uses McClellan's own words <laughs> to do it. That's <laughs> McClellan's gift to us, is his letters that make us so furious with him. Such a self refer. I mean, he, and he, nobody, cared more about himself than George B. McClellan. But Catton, Catton gets him, and Catton has this one great passage where he quotes a number of the of the accounts that McClellan would write to Ellen, to his wife, saying, oh, my men loved me. They cheered me. Somebody else told me I'm the smartest guy in the world. Somebody else told me I can only I can save the Republic. And, and Catton says there must be some real sense of absence at the core of somebody who has to keep telling someone else how wonderful other people tell him he is. There's some profound insecurity working there with McClellan. And I think that's true. I think there is. There was. But he's one of the things that Catton is very good at is portraiture in miniature in these books. He takes the time to give short biographical vignettes, which he then builds on later. McClellan's one of them. I think he and Grant, obviously, he really got Grant uh, uh, as well as I think anyone's gotten Grant. The two volumes of the Grant book, Lloyd Lewis wrote the first one on the pre-war Grant. Catton's two just take Grant to the end of the Civil War. He didn't do Grant's presidency or his post-war years as general in chief, just through the war. But he did um, uh, the two Grant move south is the first one and Grant takes command is the second one. He gets Grant. I think he... He gets most people. He's he's very hard on Hooker. He's a little harder on Hooker than maybe some people. Harder than Stephen Sears was on Hooker, for example, wow. at Chancellorsville. Uh, doesn't have much time for Pope. He gives a kind of a. But what's what's in, one of the things that was interesting, John, is that as I went through these, he's writing, and he didn't do a lot of original research. He's basically drawing on the secondary literature as it existed in about 1949 before the vast or outpouring of literature that we have now. His main source was the official records. He used the published primary literature from the time. So a lot of very of the accounts that we're uh, used to will be in there. But in terms of secondary literature, there, there really wasn't very much. Uh, the fact that he got so many things right without having this secondary literature that we have now to lean on is really impressive, I think. His instincts were good. Yeah, I was just going to ask that about what was at his disposal that was a, a large collection of books at that time, because we have a, like a book a week coming out, it seems like, on the American Civil War, and he didn't have that much. I mean, Freeman was out there. And Freeman the was important to him. I, and Freeman was actually important to me. I, I read Freeman as a kid, Lee's Lieutenants, right. after I read the Army of the Potomac trilogy. He was impressed with Freeman's work. I think Freeman's three books, which came out during the war, came out in 42, mm-hmm. between 42 and 40, 44, Lee's lieutenants, which Catton read. Catton was a bureaucrat in the in the kind of war side of things in Washington during World War II. He wrote a book called The Warlords of Washington in 1948. That was his first book that talked about his experience, war production and so forth. I think he was partly inspired to do this 
by his admiration for these lieutenants. His books are very different from, from Freeman's, but I think Freeman was an influence on him. He later wrote a very uh, positive obituary for Freedom uh, Freeman after Freeman died. Oh, wow. Wow. I, I was also wondering, Gary, does his experience as being a government employee kind of lead him to understanding the, the details of logistics and stuff like that? Well, watching the internal workings of a government trying to make and deliver to procure and deliver everything you need in a great war mm -hmm. helped him understand the tremendous importance of logistics and, and the myriad ways in which political infighting uh, intersect with military affairs mm -hmm. during a, a war that just overwhelms everything else. He really has a good eye for that. He has spends a lot of time in Washington, a lot of time on politics, a lot of time. I mean, the Army of the Potomac was the most political army on either side in the Civil War by far. And Catton does a great job of dealing with that, I think. And he and I think his World War II experience certainly comes through. He's got a he's not very friendly toward Henry Halleck. And and it's clear that his World War II experience, he says, you know, there are a lot of people in big bureaucracies who just do these kinds of things, kind of hunker down and push the paper around and cover them, cover their their rear ends. So no but and he says that's how he looks at Halleck. I think he's a little too hard on Halleck, but that's mm -hmm. how he views Halleck. And I think that's definitely an outgrowth of his experience in World War II. Mm -hmm. We, you listed a lot of his, his works throughout the, his writing era, mm -hmm. if you will. Did you see when you were going through the trilogy, did you see any kind of, uh, change in his tone or is it kind of the same thing because they happen like in a scope of like three years i think right. right three or four years yeah from i think from the time he's he did a lot of reading about the civil war he 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 grew up with a lot of civil war veterans around in his little corner mm -hmm. uh of michigan and he and his little and his friends when they were growing up looked at these guys they kind of idolized these guys you know these guys were they were at shiloh they were at gettysburg here's our tangible link uh, to the Civil War. And it was really, I think, this this experience with with Union veterans who were very much a part of people's lives then that gave him a particular interest in common soldiers, in citizen soldiers during the Civil War. I also hadn't really understood until I went back just how much these books are really a story of the of the citizen soldiers in the Army of the Potomac. That's that's what these books really are. And this is at a time when we have this vast literature on citizen soldiers now. Mm -hmm. When he began writing these, there was one book other than Hardtack and Coffee by Billings and Detailed right. Minutia of Soldier Life in the Army of Northern Virginia by Carlton McCarthy. That, those were kind of the books, one Union, one Confederate on the, on the everyday lives of common soldiers. Bell Wiley's first book had come out during mm -hmm. the war. Uh, mm -hmm. The Life of Johnny Reb. Life of Billy Yank wasn't even out yet when Catton was writing. Catton is right on the forefront of what we would call a developing literature on common soldiers. He spends a lot of time on every aspect of being a common soldier, from getting into the army to their, what they ate, what it's like to be on the march, the experience of combat, shirkers, deserters, medicine. All of this stuff uh, is covered in these books. Uh, there's a... He didn't write it in his original uh, printings of these books, but when they were reprinted in the early 60s, he said that what he really considered these books about common soldiers, that's what these books were at heart about. 
There's great stuff on commanders in them, really wonderful stuff, but it's the common soldiers. And his, his sort of thread through the whole uh, series unit in a lot of ways is the Iron Brigade. He, he does a lot with the Iron Brigade. It's easy to do a lot with the Iron Brigade, uh, right. but he does a lot with the Iron Brigade. It has a real feeling for those. He's a Midwesterner. There's this one Western Brigade, as they would have put it, Midwestern, as we would, including the 24th Michigan uh, from Catton's home state. He uses them uh, a great deal as he as he takes the army through its campaigns. Mm -hmm. I, I really enjoyed in the introduction uh, how you pinpointed that with him putting the the iron brigade at gettysburg and hearing the guns far off it's just it just you can close your eyes and just you can see it you can close your eyes and when my eyes are closed they still almost this i'm almost afraid to admit this that they all, i still kind of get tears in my eyes when i read his long paragraph that brings the iron brigade onto the battlefield on july 1st it's an amazing paragraph that sets yeah. up this unit that's so proud of how it with the army were ever drawn up in one long line. It's the first brigade of the first division of the first corps. It'll be all the way over, be the very first unit and they wear special hats and there are 1800 of them and here they go. And, and uh, he, the way he sets up the sounds and you can see smoke drifting ahead. It's an amazing paragraph. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then as we learn in a few pages, two thirds of them are shot. And they're never a great brigade again. They're going into the last great fight for this very storied brigade. It's an amazingly evocative paragraph. It's the kind of thing, when he's really at his best, he's really, really good. And that paragraph is a good example of that. Was it a pretty hard sell or an easy sell for him to get a publisher to do his books? It was a very hard sell initially. He, he was turned down uh, in his initial effort to place Mr. Lincoln's army somewhere. And he had a, a very famous bookman from New York who helped him finally place them with Doubleday. But the books weren't all that successful. They sold two or 3,000 copies, Mr. Lincoln's Army did, and then Glory Road did. And a stillness at Appomattox wasn't even selling that well until it won the Pulitzer Prize. And then, then I think stillness at Appomattox went up and it sold maybe 70,000 or so. And the others picked up to about 30,000. I think they sold maybe 130 or 40,000 as a set but they all another way the way i got them is that they were offered as an incentive for the book of the month club that's how my mother got them for oh. me it was one of the things you got for a dollar a piece from the book of the month club i've got the book of the month club editions of uh nice. of the army of the potomac trilogy so they reached a, a lot more people that way than they did just through the regular publishers editions do you think that catton not only uh, kind of appealed to us from a literary point of view, but he maybe influenced how people saw the wayside markers on battlefields as they were popping up during the centennial and they were putting new markers up and, and new stuff. I, I think Was he changing he the language? No, I, I think that he probably did. I, in doing the, the research that I did to write the, I, I wrote an introduction for this, just talking about Catton and about the books and then prepared a chronology about his life, but I found wonderful quotations about him, including some very good ones from Stephen Sears, who in some ways is a kind of successor to Catton, a really gifted narrative writer who's written about the Army of the Potomac a lot. But Sears worked for Catton when he was very young at American Heritage. 
And he makes the case, Sears does, that in all of the talk about the things that really boosted interest in the Civil War, the kind of some of the things that we talked about in the in the late 80s and in, into the, the early 90s, he makes a case that that really the person who set the stage for a lot of that was Bruce Catton. And all the people who read Bruce Catton before then, so they have this kind of baseline in place, a lot of people like me, uh, given by Bruce Catton, and I think to a lesser degree by Douglas Southall Freeman. Those were the two great narrative writers uh, of, of the 40s, 50s, 60s, and so forth. But Catton had a long-term effect, I think, not just a short-term effect. I think he had a long-term effect on how many people were interested in the Civil War, civil nobody was buying Civil War books in the late 1940s uh, and mm -hmm. into the early 50s. They just it wasn't something publishers weren't interested. wasn't wasn't a field that people were buying. Mm -hmm. What was Catton's thought on the Army of the Potomac, the Officer Corps? Because when I was growing up and going to Gettysburg in the 125th and and such, I'm thinking of of people like Governor Warren. Yeah, who was seen as the the hero of Little Round Top, and that Absolutely. changes with uh, Shara and then the movie uh, Gettysburg. Was he uh, putting these kind of representations of the Army of the Potomac on a different strata than we do today? Was he saying, "Well, hey, these were the important people," or are they kind of similar, except for maybe one or two, like Governor Warren and a few others? I think that he. I mean, he for. I mean, Governor Warren. Uh, Shara and I mean Shara and Ken Burns have pulled off something that that would have surprised the Civil War generation, and that's making Joshua Chamberlain the hero of Little Round Top <laughs> instead of Governor Warren, right. uh, and to a lesser degree Strong Vincent, and maybe even Patty O'Rourke. I mean, there were other right. heroes. I think one way to it's really interesting to read a memorial landscape that tells us a lot about who the Civil War generation thought. Governor Warren has a great statue. Uh, uh, Strong Vincent is on top of the 83rd Pennsylvania Monument and has another smaller marker up on the slope of Little Round Top saying he was mortally wounded. Patty O'Rourke has the great ball relief where everybody rubs his nose and makes it shiny. There's no monument to Joshua Chamberlain on Little Round Top. No. So Catton doesn't make Joshua Chamberlain. Uh, he doesn't anticipate that that little Chamberlain boomlet. He no. has the, the main people that we would think would be the primary figures. What he's very good at, he's very good on, on pinning down the, the culture of command that George B. McClellan created in the Army of the Potomac and how long a life that had in the Army of the Potomac. And of course, Warren is the last part of it to go at Five Forks on April 1st, 1865. He handles Gettysburg. He has this great passage that starts out when I first was reading that I thought, oh, God, here we go. Gettysburg's the great. He, he's, his kind of summary take on Gettysburg is Gettysburg made it clear that the Confederacy could not win the war. And I thought, OK. Hmm. But the next sentence says that doesn't, of course, mean that the United States couldn't lose the war. They still had to maintain uh, their effort. I mean, they could easily lose the war if they didn't. They had to stay on board, both the civilians, which is exactly right. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, yeah. and, and that's actually the way that I think Robert E. Lee would have put it. We can't defeat them absolutely, but we don't have to, we have to persuade them. It's not worth it. Catton got that exactly with Gettysburg and, and understands why Lincoln was exasperated. And even if Meade did a good job in many ways, what he didn't do was exhibit the kind of killer instinct 
that either Lee would have or Grant would have or Philip Sheridan would have. I mean, different kinds of leaders would have simply handled that differently, even if there were risks involved. Catton gets that very well. And and um, so I think he gets he, he gets the culture of the Army of the Potomac ex- exceedingly well to my reading of it. He does. Doesn't mean he I mean, of course, he there's some things I would quibble with and anyone would now. And there are things that additional literature has made clear that wasn't that wouldn't have been clear then. But for the most part, in, including he does a great job of dealing with emancipation and how that is, I mean, and he weaves that in and out of his stories in ways that almost no one at that point would have been doing. The the literature on emancipation and black people in the war was minuscule when he was writing. I mean, really minuscule. And he uses phrases, we, 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 the ones that are current that he talks about Negro troops and colored troops, which is, which is how people would have written. And we didn't change that. Didn't change any of the language in the books. Uh, So it's a little bit dated in that regard, but I think that's a just have to understand that and then read it for a book of its time. But he, but he, he has the importance of emancipation percolating through through these volumes and how it comes more and more to the fore, and how critical the army is in terms of how that works out. Mm-hmm. Do you think he away with the army of the Potomac? Uh, you and I are of agreements where we're, we're basically like, you know, this is, this is the lead army. This is the army. This is the the theater of the war. Was it, was it, was it Catton who did that kind of stuff to us? Did it help do that? Or Catton did didn't he, hurt it. He didn't hurt it. <laughs> I know no, we, you and I are on the same page with this. We're not going to have that argument tonight about what's, what's more important, Vicksburg or Gettysburg. But, he has an interesting you know. thing in here. He says the army of the Potomac, they didn't win the they didn't win the war at Gettysburg, but they were going to push on through to the end, and they were going to do what was necessary so the war could maybe be won somewhere else. Is how he puts it, which gets at, uh, I mean, the Army of the Potomac's casualties far exceeded those of any other United States Army as we know, and we've talked. I mean, far exceeded the, the Second Corps was by far the bloodiest corps in any army that the United States fielded during the Civil War. That's what the army, of course, they're up against the guy. You can't be around Lee without having big casualties. That's all mm-hmm. there is to it. It's just mm-hmm. not going to happen. Not going to happen. Mm-hmm. But he, yeah. I think he gets the, he, he gets the political importance of the Army of the Potomac too. People look at, the, Washington is right there all the time. And they're kind of breathing down the necks of the, of the soldiers who are commanding the Army of the Potomac. They're always aware of it. Uh, the Meade's always aware of it. McClellan's intensely aware of it. Mm-hmm. Pope is a very political guy who kind of makes the political rounds in Washington before a month, I mean, for a month before he even takes the field with the Army of Virginia in, in, in August of 1862. These people, uh, they're, they're highly politicized. People going behind the backs of Burnside, the way we know, they go to Washington, they curry favor with politicians, they try to, I mean, it's really a politicized army, right. far more than any other one. And Captain is excellent on that, as I said earlier, he really gets it. And I think his World War II experience certainly plays mm-hmm. into that. Mm-hmm. He, he, he understands Washington and, and he understands Washington in the midst of a great war, the city of Washington, mm-hmm. the bureaucracy of Washington. The World War II bureaucracy is much bigger but in terms of what had been there before, the Civil War bureaucracy gets pretty big. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to I want to thank my my friend Joe Ricci from Franklin is here, and he says the Western Theater guy has entered the chat. 
Yeah, we, we know, Joe. We're going to hear about the Western Theater from you. <laughs> Western Theater is a very fine theater. It's, it's, fine theater. <laughs> it's two on one here. All right. <laughs> and, 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 and Bruce Canton spent a lot of time in the Western Theater on his first volume on U.S. Grant. That volume is uh, you, you get you get it all. You get Shiloh and Donaldson and Chattanooga and Vicksburg all in one fat book there. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Joe. No trilogy. It's just one fat <laughs> book there for you. Uh, my friend Shorzy from Twitch asks, is there going to be a Kindle version of this book? Does, does Library of America do Kindle as well later on? No, I should know the answer to that. And I don't know the answer to that. I I, I don't know. Don't know. Okay. Well, I know a lot of people are doing digital because those of us who are done moving books uh, <laughs> are going to digital. Easier to move your phone than 20 boxes of heavy books. That's for sure. That's very true. I have a, I have it now. I have 200 books on one thing. So I'm like, Ooh, that's I mean, nice. They <laughs> might do that. They might even do it. I went back. Uh, I, I, I reread the books and I listened to them on audible. Uh, mm -hmm. The Army of the Potomac mm -hmm. trilogy is so I, I don't know how they'll do this, but I imagine they'll make it available in one more, more than one format. That's the world we're in now. But uh, right. the only thing I've seen is the is the the very nicely done little hardcover book. They do them on acid-free paper. They took they not only used the maps that came out in the three books originally. They took all the full color maps from the centennial history of the Civil War and put those in the in this book as well. They're wow. at the, the beginning of this book. And they have full color end papers of maps from the centennial history of the Civil War, which was a very nice touch to add those things to this edition mm. of the Army of the Potomac trilogy. Mm -hmm. What do you think of, of Catton using the uh, unit histories as primary sources? Because sometimes we as professors, teachers, educators say, okay, take some of it with a grain of salt. And he's diving headlong into it. How do you- Yeah, or a spoonful of salt. I mean, the, <laughs> yeah. the, the, the regimental histories have a very low reputation or have for a long time among academic historians, for sure. Mm -hmm. And I was one of those who made a lot of sort of uh, deprecatory comments about them and would sort of wave them away until I, I got a, an excellent graduate student named Peter Lubke, who actually read mm -hmm. a lot of them and used them and then told me that maybe I should look at them before I dismissed them so quickly and that you can't deal with them just as a genre because they came out over a, a very long period mm -hmm. and nearly 70 of them came out within about a year to two years after the end of the war. They're really kind of right in the midst of events. They often draw on diaries from members in the, they're, they're written by members of the regiments, for members of the regiments. They use materials from the regiments and they're actually a treasure trove in many ways to get soldier attitudes toward all kinds of things. Catton's the first person who used these extensively, the very first one who really used them extensively. Uh, Bell Wiley relied on soldier letters in Johnny Reb and Billy Yank much more than anything that had been published. Catton, who didn't use manuscripts that much, really did mine this load of evidence that other people hadn't mined. That's one of the things, one of the prime, and these are primary accounts, of course, it's one category of primary accounts that he was a kind of trailblazer in using. You have to be careful using them, but there's great stuff in them. Uh, really, really good stuff in them. I think especially in the in the earlier ones, the ones that are written in 64, 65, and 66, um, right in the midst of events, uh, written just after soldiers quit writing letters because the soldiers have gone home. It's kind of the 
it's kind of a continuation of the war, their attitudes about why the war was important, what did we really care about, that kinds of stuff comes out of those early regimental histories very, very clearly. I was going to say that would be a very raw emotional thing for those men to put on paper. And it had to be looking at them in 18, from 1865, 1866, could be drastically different than 1895 and 1896. Very different. And, and again, the fact that they were writing them for one another, in other words, they're writing for somebody who was there. So you, you can't write something nutty if your comrades are going to read it they're because they're going to know that you're not, that, that you're, you're not playing it straight. And, and they also could do some things. I mean, veterans have a shorthand that other people, they know things that other people don't know. And uh, I think that there's an element of that. I'm never going to pretend that I can understand what it's like to be in combat. I, 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 and anybody who pretends they understand should stop doing that right now, uh, because it's not something you can learn secondhand. The regimental histories, I think, have information that could only come from soldiers and the fact that they're talking to other soldiers for the most part. They're not, for the most part, published with big publishers for a wide audience. They're published for one another. I think that gives them a value uh, that that people such as myself didn't appreciate for a long time. I think Catton did. Hmm. Uh, this is, Catton is almost, well, it is a, a popular history movement at that time to get into the hands of the everyday citizen uh these books are this is for everybody to experience off the news completely accessible right accessibility uh do you think this also can help propel modern historians to reach new audiences by saying well hey catton did it maybe maybe a publishing house that's that way can help better uh, I, I'm, not trying, I'm not trying to throw stones. I'm no, saying, John, no, uh, nobody throws more stones at academia than I do. I mean, <laughs> it is, I think that's just not something that's valued very much mm-hmm. in academia. I, mm-hmm. I just don't. And mm-hmm. I think it's seen really good narrative writers are often dismissed as sort of, I mean, they're popularizers, which is a bad thing. And uh, they don't use uh, the, the kind of specialized language that academics do, which I think often obscures more than it reveals, actually. You can make almost any idea, however complex, clear using actual words and without resorting to uh, to academic lingo. But no, I don't see any big push on the academic side to say uh, what you have is a lot of complaining among academics that people don't, oh, people don't read me, they read you know, they'll read somebody like Stephen Sears or they'll read somebody, some popularizer. Well, you can't have it both ways. If you don't write in a way that people want to read, why should they read you? The third time someone sees the word trope in a book, they're probably going to quit reading it. Okay, that's enough. I've reached my three trope limit. I've had it. And I'm only on page six. So that is, I, I think, I don't see that ending anytime soon. Mm-hmm. There aren't many academics who cross over a very, I mean, Jim McPherson is the most obvious exception to that in the Civil War world, mm-hmm. uh, but there are not that many of them. A lot of them pretend they're doing that, but they're not really doing that. I've, I've noticed that too, Gary, where if you kind of go down the lineage of people who followed in Catton's footsteps with that more popular history, if you will, they're kind of uh, pushed to the side by oh. a lot of academics. And they say, well, that's not that's not true. Where, what's this, where's this coming from? Et cetera. Absolutely. It's, it's every, and, and they nobody, haven't, half of them haven't read it, but it, that's what they said. 
<laughs> no, I mean, nobody cites Catton for any. I mean, their academics no. don't cite Catton. They don't go back and, and, and cite Catton. They could actually could on some of his common soldier stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but even an academic, I mean, Douglas Southall Freeman had a PhD from Johns Hopkins, but he mm -hmm. spent his career as a journalist. And he is not, I mean, he's also, apart from the kind of lost cause aroma over part of what he did, he, he's never, I mean, he's, he's just, you're put in a different category. Alan Nevins, too. Alan Nevins was another journalist who didn't have a PhD, but wrote his writings on the Civil War are well worth reading now. Nobody reads them. Nobody cites them. They're full of good stuff, but it's just you're there's still a divide between those two worlds. So I again, some people argue that's not the case, but it is. It's just there's there's a divide. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do we self subconsciously use Catton? more than we realize we do as oh, historians because this was the most uh as i went through this i mean i read these the first time when i was 10 or 11 years old and then just kind of went back to them again and again and through my teens what came became clear to me is that things that i have used for 50 years key episodes even some key language it came from catton and mm -hmm. i didn't even know it some of the characterizations of things that that I have deployed in my career, I found in these books when I back when that was a kind of chastening to me that I was channeling Catton in ways that I wasn't even aware of. He he so embedded himself <clears throat> in my mind when I was in the formative period of coming to terms with the war that that has remained that that influence has remained in, I mean, not, not in lots of ways, but in, I, there, there were a couple of dozen points at which I went, oh, there's that. <laughs> That's something <laughs> I've been relating to groups forever. And mm. it's from Catton. And I didn't even know it was from Catton. Mm. He's so good. I mean, he, when he really decides he's going to take his time on a battlefield, for example, and really it's like bringing the Iron Brigade on, his description of the fighting at the bloody angle is, is, is mesmerizing. His description of the explosion of the mine at Petersburg is incredible. Just the way it's just, it's, he just has, he has a gift for that. When that's what he decides he's going to do, he's really good at it. Mm -hmm. When he decides he's going to give you a, uh, an incisive portrait of somebody, he's really good at that as well. Mm -hmm. uh, when he wants to bring Paul, he, he brings so many non-strictly military things in which appeals to academics that's one way in which his work should appeal that he's not just drums and bugles he's much more than that but i think if we polled people who weren't really familiar with him the attitude would be he's all you know he gets you on a battlefield then the 20th maine went this way then they went that way and then cowan's battery came up that's what they think it is and that isn't what it is mm -hmm. it's it's almost like he's I mean, it's the common. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go, 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 Gary. I mean, the 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 way that he gives the common soldier's view even really comes out in the way that he finishes it. He he is he's in the observer's view when he does Lincoln. He brings Lincoln up to the point at Gettysburg on November nineteenth, eighteen sixty three, where he begins to speak. That's it. He doesn't talk about the Gettysburg Address. He, he you're watching Lincoln come up. At Appomattox, he doesn't go into Wilmer McLean's parlor with Grant and the other Union generals and with Lee. And no, he 
he has the Union soldiers watch Grant ride by as they're going toward. And that's the end. The last thing you have is the common soldier's view of Grant going toward Appomattox Courthouse. It's just really, it, it, and it's so effective. It, it really is effective. And then that's it. That's it. Mm -hmm. Over here we are. We just watched. Uh, there he goes. And I uh, wonder what's going to happen in there. It's really, really a nice device. It's it's almost, dare I say, like like reading art. You know, it, 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 it paints that picture literally in your head where you're, yes. you're seeing this happening. And it's almost like a movie uh, thing, because when we watch a movie, we want to be entertained and also maybe learn a thing or two now and then about something that took place. But we're not worried about the little details, you know, about things. We just want the bigger picture. And he's giving us that kind of art. That's what he's giving us. And and some of the scenes, just like some scenes from movies are scenes that stay with us forever. Mm -hmm. A number of the scenes from Catton really will just stay with you because he he strings words together. Sometimes I'll stop and I'll read a sentence and go, how in the world did he decide to put words together that way? They just work perfectly. That would never occur to me to put words together that way. And there he did. And he got away with it. He didn't only get away with it. It's really compelling. And he you just kind of stop occasionally and admire the writing. Which, which doesn't happen very often with me when I'm reading history books about the Civil War. Uh, but it, but it, does, it does happen with Bruce Catton. Happens a little bit with other people. Uh, but, but, I mean, Shelby Foote can write. Freeman could write. Catton could write better than either one of them, in my view. In my mm. view. I, I often tell people who are just getting that little itch to learn something about the Civil War, I'm, that's who I send them to. Because I don't want them to get bogged down in at Coddington or something like that. Don't don't do that. No, I've had people tell people that where they're like, if you want to learn Gettysburg, read Coddington. I'm like, no, no, no. no that's the <laughs> that's the twentieth thing you read about Gettysburg right. is Coddington. Not the right. you'll it's it's actually hard to read really close tactical history. It's hard to keep straight what's going on. It's hard to mm -hmm. that's not what I still give if if I. I've done this more than once in my life, met a young person who seems to be kind of on the cusp of being interested in the Civil War. I've tracked down copies of the American Heritage Picture History of the Civil War and given them those mm -hmm. because it has great images. It has the unbelievable David Greenspan maps, the bird's eye maps of the battlefields, and yeah. it has Catton's text. And those, that is a way, boy, get somebody in with that and then then they want more. Okay, now what can I, okay, what, what should I read next? I really enjoyed that. What should I read next? Right. And it seems and like the Army of the Potomac trilogy does that as well. It's, it's, it's like seeing a, uh, it's, it's, it's something that pulls you in, gives you a taste of it and makes you want more. And mm -hmm. it's so much better. I'm not saying there's no good writing about the Civil War now. There's no writing about the Civil War now that's better than Bruce Catton. There just there just isn't. In terms I, of this question just came up, Gary, and it leads right into that uh, from David Wilhelm. Thank you for this. I wonder whether Gary thinks there will ever be another writer like Cadden, or is it that bygone era? Well, I think I think there are probably writers who aren't academics who would love to be as good as Bruce Catton, and I, I won't say there'll never be another Bruce Catton. I mean, uh, it's there may well be, I'm a complete Jane Austen fan. I think there's only one Jane Austen. There's never been another one of hers. Maybe there will be sometime. There could be another Bruce Catton, but as you pointed out in a very gentle way, John, I'm a really old guy. 
And, and I've been reading this stuff for a very long time. Very gentle. And I haven't run into another Bruce Catton. There's one Bruce Catton so far. There are others who are really good, but mm -hmm. he still, in my view, is the best. So mm -hmm. I hope there'll be another one, but I haven't run into the to the next Bruce Catton yet. I haven't run mm -hmm. into the person I'm gonna say, okay, Bruce Catton is now the second best narrative writer that I've ever read on the mm -hmm. Civil War. He's number mm -hmm. two now. Mm -hmm. Hadn't happened yet. I I almost feel like personally, I almost feel like Catton is like Shakespeare. It's like I'm it, not sure I'll go quite that far, but I will. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, you can't touch it. It's one of those things where it's like, okay, Shakespeare's gonna be Shakespeare. Yeah. Catton's gonna be and, Catton. And, and Shakespeare doesn't hit Shakespeare strikes out sometimes too. Oh, uh, yeah. and, and sometimes Catton, as I said earlier, he tries a little bit too hard. Uh, yeah. uh, but but for the most part, he doesn't. He for the most part, his batting average, he's got a very high batting average and mm -hmm. and also a good average for home runs, uh, not just singles. Uh, he's 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 he was very good, very good at what he did. And I think he brought a particular, I think the fact that he had known veterans, that's an intangible that a, no writer in the future can have. I mean, that's something, I mean, I grew up where everybody's father was a World War II veteran, including my own. I was talking with some friends about this last week. There aren't many World War II veterans. I mean, the youngest World War II veterans are, in, are 95 years old now. Pretty mm -hmm. soon there aren't going to be any World War II veterans, right. which to me is kind of unimaginable. Because right. everybody was a World War II veteran when I was growing up. Well, Catton, even my father, who grew up in Los Angeles. My father lived to be 100. He was born in 1920. He grew up in LA and his family would go to the Rose Parade. He, he said a feature of every Rose Parade when he was a little boy was a bunch of Union veterans who would march by in their blue, blue uniforms, most of them with long gray beards. So even, I mean, it's there is something that Catton had that we won't have in that regard. Doesn't mean that we, I don't know, exactly what that conveyed to him, but it conveyed something to him. It was important to him to have had a contact, a good longstanding contact with men who'd actually been in the Civil War. Mm -hmm. Do you think in writing this and editing this, uh, do you think this is going to, Catton's work is going to just be something that sticks around with us for more generations I, I hope, other than the academic world <laughs> right right really i agreed to do this because it seemed to me that it might the library of america volumes are so good they're so well done mm -hmm. yeah. that it seemed to me a way to bring cat even though used copies of cat are everywhere you can find them everywhere but if you don't know what you're looking for this is a way the book got a review in the wall street journal a couple of days ago a nice review by harold holzer and I just checked on Amazon. It went from, you know, 100,000 down to 300. So somebody's buying it. And I think, and I don't get royalties from it. So I'm not trying to tell people, go buy a copy. I'll get 17 cents. I, I just think that the good thing is that more people are going to discover Catton. And I think this is this is my favorite of all of Catton's work. The Army of the Potomac Trilogy is my, I, I like almost all his work. This is the favorite Mm -hmm. uh, of all his work for me. And I think that, so I think this is the best hook to use. If you want to hook people in using Catton, this is the way to do it. I think mm -hmm. it is the re I, with all, uh, nods to our Western theater friends. This is the army. This is the greatest army of the Republic involved in the most famous battles of the civil war. Most of them. 
And so if you're going to pull someone in and it has everybody from McClellan to Grant and all the, you know, all the subalterns in there, this is the way to, to pull people in if you're going to pull them in. If you can really do the Army of the Potomac, well, that's a good way to get people in. And of course, the magic of Gettysburg, there's nothing we can do about that. Gettysburg is Gettysburg. Yep. And it's like little fleas trying to make an elephant slow down. You just can't do it. You cannot keep people from thinking Gettysburg is everything. Well, it's only one army on the Union side that fought at Gettysburg, and it's mm -hmm. this one. So that's mm -hmm. another way to get people in, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that there was a, a data point that I read about 15 years ago. They did a kind of like a mailer kind of thing in the 1880s, asking veterans, or I guess around 1888, 1887, they said, how many of you were at Gettysburg? Who were you with, et cetera? And over 300,000 people said they were at Gettysburg. Now, <laughs> I have never heard anyone say I was at Vicksburg and 300,000 people said that. So it, that shows you that even they- Never were, mind Glorietta Pass. Were you at right, Glorietta Pass? Right. right. They even wanted to be there when they weren't there. And it was like- That is, that is actually hilarious. That's yeah. like how many people were, everybody, you know, was at Woodstock. Everybody- right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Everyone Everybody saw there. Wilt Chamberlain score 100 points when yeah. actually almost nobody was there. Right. That. Yeah, I, 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 I read that years ago and I can't remember where I saw it, but it was a 300,000. 300,000 veterans said they were at Gettysburg. And I'm like, and are, no, these that's just union, are those just union veterans or union and Confederate? It was mostly mostly union, but they were getting returns from Confederate because it was around the 1880s when they're looking to put up more monuments. Wow. And someone sent wow. out these mailers and wow. found out that they got like 300,000 returned yes. And they're like, no, you, you weren't here. <laughs> that's, boy, I wish you remembered where I would I love to be able to cite that and, and tell people. I know. That. I've been looking for it for the last 10 years and it might have been one of the books I got rid of, but I don't know. <laughs> uh, but I, I know I read it and I know it was legit. I looked at the doesn't surprise. It doesn't surprise me. It, it, well, yeah. it's like, it, it's like, I mean, again, it's like the opening of the film Lincoln where you have, as Lincoln goes down to talk to the veterans who are headed off to Wilmington in, in right. January 65, and they quote the Gettysburg Address to him. Yeah. Nobody could quote the Gettysburg Address to Lincoln in January. No. Nobody. Nobody <laughs> paid attention to it until later. But it's but it's it seems like it must be true that, that of course, these soldiers, and quote it verbatim to right. him. It's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's amazing. It's, a, it's amazing how uh, historical memory just ebbs and flows and then and then people saying they were there when they weren't and but a lot of people said they were part of the army of the potomac and they weren't and there. they weren't <laughs> so and the army probably not as many people argued that they were a, a part of the army of the ohio that probably wasn't probably quite not. as common <laughs> <laughs> probably not no no disrespect to the army of ohio <laughs> Two hundred fifty thousand people didn't claim they fought with braxton bragg uh, that wasn't the thing they really wanted if, if you, you know yeah yeah, <laughs> crazy. But yes, I am so glad that Library of America asked you to do this, Gary, because this this trilogy changed a lot of lives over the years and got a lot of us into the field in the first place. And mm -hmm. and, and uh, I've definitely put links into the the chat for that. And Gary, I have to ask you before we log off here in a few minutes, uh, what is next for you? What are you working on? Next for me is something very different. I'm going to edit my mother's memoir and diary from World War II. She was in the only Navy USO show in the Pacific. 
She was on Guam and Saipan and Tinian and uh, Peleliu and uh, and on they entertained on heavy cruisers and she ate with Admiral Byrd, the famous explorer on aircraft carrier Ticonderoga, went up in a in a dauntless. I mean, she had quite an adventure. She kept a diary of it when she was there and in the 50s turned that into a memoir, which she then just put aside. And in the 90s, she dusted it off. We I just had 30 copies printed and bound for her. But I'm going to take that, put those together, write an introduction. Uh, I think they're unique. I don't think there's another 22 year old um, uh, young woman from Los Angeles who ended up on the went in Japanese caves when there were still dead Japanese soldiers in them. It was quite an amazing adventure for her. So that's what I'm going to do next. That's my wow. project. Tinian's where the bomb went off. Uh, they, they she, was on, off. she was on Tinian, Tinian when the Enola Gay took off. Wow. They 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 named a B-29 after her and painted her picture on the side of it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, I can't wait to read this. This is going to be And there too. were Navy photographers everywhere with them. So there are these unbelievable photographs of every part of this wow. show that she was in. Yeah. What's it like to have that record for your mother? That's it's incredible. Because I don't have anything like that. Like, I don't have photographs of my mother, more than like 20 of them. So I have a friend of mine who works at the National Archives discovered Navy films of this show. I just got them last week. He sent wow. me. There's my mother at age 22 on a stage with 15,000 sailors cheering on Guam yeah. in July 1945. Unbelievable. Wow. Unbelievable. Really wow. and truly. I'm, I'm glad she she kept the diary. I she came within one day of throwing it away. <laughs> I caught her in the act, basically, of throwing it away, and I rescued the diary and have it have have had it in my possession ever since. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad. I don't want that piece of history to go out. Wow, that's awesome. Well, I'm glad to hear you're working on another thing because I know Gary, you don't you know stay sedentary long when it comes to writing. So no, it's just kind of what I do, but it'll be this will be a great change of pace. I'm really looking forward to, to doing this. I'm, I'm I'm looking forward to reading that. And uh everyone, please go over into the link that I put in there for Catton's Army of the Potomac trilogy, edited by Gary Gallagher. It really means a lot to uh, have you back on here, Gary. I really appreciate you and everything you've done to uh light the spark in a lot of us too to learn more about the Civil War. I, I always love to come on and talk with you, John. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you.